Hey, 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 English 11. <clears throat> How are you guys? All right, let's see what time it is. Tuesday, April 14th, 8.48 p.m. Hope everybody's doing well. <sighs> what a day, guys. Some of these days are just long. I have a really hard time when it's cold outside and windy and I can't be out there with my kids. That's when I really go stir crazy. That's when I start to consume Oreos and my children's Easter candy at... Um, an exponential rate. Okay, so today on the pod, I want to discuss our setting, New York City, and I want to discuss two more characters. And I'm going to read. I'm going to read quite a bit from the from chapter one. So if you're reading along with me, awesome. If you're just listening to the podcast, that's okay too. But I hope the podcast episodes encourage you to also keep reading. So let's get started. I'm going to read in my novel. I'm on chapter seven. And on chapter seven, we get to this really early part where he talks about moving to Nick. Sorry, if you don't know who Nick is, listen to my most recent episode yesterday. And then he talks about going to New York City one summer, the summer of 1922. So he says... um, I came east permanently, I thought, in the spring of 22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city, but it was warm, a warm season, and I had just left a country of wide lawns and friendly trees. So when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in a commuting town, it sounded like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow, at 80 a month, but at the last minute the firm ordered him to Washington, and I went out to the country alone. Okay, so he goes out to the, quote, country, but um, maybe I'll try to put this in classroom. You you want to picture, uh, you know, New York City, and then they're going to drive out to these peninsulas outside the city where they're on the water, they're beautiful. But his house, Nick's house, is this really tiny house. He calls it a cardboard bungalow at 80 a month. And he lives in what is called West Egg. And I know I read this quote yesterday, but I'm going to read this again. Top of page nine, it says, It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house on one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on that slenderest, riotous island, which extends itself due east of New York, and where there are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formations of land. 20 miles from the city, a pair of enormous eggs, identical in contour and separated only by a courtesy bay jut out into the most domesticated body of saltwater in the Western Hemisphere, the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. They are not perfect ovals, like the egg in the Columbus story. They are both crushed flat and at the contact contact end, but their physical resemblance must be a source of perpetual confusion to the gulls that fly overhead. Okay, what he's trying to say here is, 20 miles east of New York City, there are two peninsulas that jut out onto Long Island Sound. And the two peninsulas are called East Egg and West Egg. Now, we're going to get them confused the whole book long, and that's okay. But let's kind of define them right now. So he lives, Nick Carraway lives in West Egg, okay? And remember, it's a peninsula surrounded by a body of water. So he says... I lived at West Egg, the, and then he kind of stops, there's a dash, well, the less fashionable of the two, 
though this is a most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. Okay, so first he says that West Egg is less fashionable, okay? Then he is going to tell us who lives next to him, okay? And this is where things get interesting. Although Nick is in a cardboard bungalow, he says, the house or the one on my right was a colossal affair by any standard. It was a factual imitation of some Hotel de Ville in Normandy with a tower on one side, spanking new under a thin beard of raw ivory and a marble swimming pool and more than 40 acres of lawn and garden. It was Gatsby's mansion. Or rather, as I didn't know Mr. Gatsby, it was a mansion inhabited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore and it had been overlooked. So I had the view of the water and a partial view of my neighbor's lawn and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for 80 a month. So Nick's side of the bay is called West Egg, and he calls it the less fashionable. Well, now we have to talk about who's on the other side. Across the Courtesy Bay, the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with the Tom Buchanans. I just love this book so much, I have to say that. Okay, I'm taking my glasses off. So here's the deal, guys. West Egg, less fashionable. East Egg, it says the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered along the water. When we talk about Tom and Daisy Buchanan, they're the ones who live on East Egg. They are going to be the definition of what we are going to understand as readers as old money. This is a concept that may sound foreign to you as 21st century Midwestern students, for lack of a better word, but it is actually a thing in America. And old money is money that a person inherits over the span of several generations. And old money means all sorts of things. Old money never goes away. Old money is kind of like, you know, more money than you could ever really make in a lifetime. It's the opposite of those who, quote, get rich quick, okay? Old money is inherited. Um, Chris Rock had this great stand-up special that I cannot link in classroom because every other word is the F word. But he talks about the word rich and the word wealthy and the difference between the two. And he talks about how wealth is a different level. Like he talks about, again, like you're going to be like, no, that's not true. He talks about how certain people are rich, like Oprah is rich. And then there are certain people who are wealthy. And the wealthy are like way beyond the rich in a way that I think is like normal people we can't even understand. But anyway, Tom and Daisy Buchanan are wealthy. They're old money. Let me read to you a little bit about Tom Buchanan. It says... Um, okay, wait, first I have to read to you about their house and then I'll, I'll try to put a, a picture in classroom or the clip from the movie because the movie does an amazing job at proving to you like we're in a different planet of wealth with the Buchanans. It says, and so it happened on that on a warm, windy evening, I drove over to East Tag to see two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. Oh, he says like Daisy's his second cousin, I think. Their house was uh, was even more elaborate than I expected, the cheerful red and white Georgian colonial mansion overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter mile, 
jumping over sundials and brick wall, brick walks and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house, drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run. The front was broken by a line of French windows glowing now with reflected gold and wide open to the warm, windy afternoon. Tom Buchanan was in riding clothes and standing with his legs apart on the front porch. Okay, riding clothes means that he has been riding a horse, okay? Because he has horses. Because people with old money own polo horses. I got to read this next part. I could read this, okay, forever. He had changed since his New Haven year. So him and Nick had gone to college together. Now he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of 30 with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. Not even the effeminate swank of his riding clothes could hide those en- the enormous power of that body. He seemed to fill those glistening boots until he strained the top lacing, and you could see a great pack of muscles shifting when his shoulder moved under his coat. It was a body capable of enormous leverage, a cruel body. His speaking voice, a gruff, husky tenor, added to the impression of fractitiousness he conveyed. There was a touch of paternal contempt in it, and even toward people he liked, and there were men at New Haven who had hated his guts. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a sec. So that's a physical description of Tom Buchanan, who we're going to get to know really well. Tom Buchanan is a very wealthy white guy who also happens to be physically powerful. He's like got these big muscles and he's attractive, but he's a real jerk. So that kind of takes away from it, but he's an attractive guy who's inherited a ton of money. So guess what? Life is super awesome for him. That's kind of one of the things that you're going to notice about Tom Buchanan. Um, It says on the previous page, I just want to highlight this. His family were enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reproach. Um, Oh, and then it says, but now he'd left Chicago and come East in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he'd brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was hard to realize that a man of my own generation was wealthy enough to do that. Uh, in the clip that that um, I'll post to classroom eventually, there's this amazing the, the scene when Nick walks up to the house. You like see Tom Buchanan playing polo, and you're I mean it's just unbelievable. But again, this is what the book is all about: the disparity of wealth in America and all of the I don't know how to explain this, like how that damages everybody, but it never damages the wealthy. You guys already know that. Okay. Um, so he takes Nick on a tour. And one thing that if you're reading the book with me, like you'll always notice that Nick, that Tom is always like pushing Nick in little, in these directions. So Tom always uses his body physically. And Nick is, um, you know, you just kind of want to picture him like a nerdy guy. Like we talked about last time, nerdy bookish guy who works on wall street with these big eyes or these, I don't think you know how to picture him with glasses. He doesn't have glasses in the book. Um, but he's just very observant. Okay. Then when he, so he takes them through the house and they, and they get to the living room and there's another, there's two women sitting on the couch. And again, these are really classic scenes from both movies. Um, there's two women sitting on the couch and one of them is, well, both of them are main characters, but Daisy is one of our second main character for tonight. And she is Tom's wife. Okay. 
So I just want to read this sentence. They walk through the house and they arrive. It says, we walk through the high hallway into a bright, rosy colored space, fragilely bound into the house by French windows at either end. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to be, that seemed to grow a little, a little way into the house. A breeze blew through the room, blue curtains in at one end and out the other, like pale flags, twisting them up toward the frosted wedding cake of the ceiling. What a great description of the ceiling. And then rippled over the wine colored rug, making a shadow on it as the wind does at, at, on the sea. I'm not kidding you guys. When they made this movie, they like had the wind blow through the room. And I only pause to say that because Fitzgerald's descriptions of the people in these places are so beautifully created that the movie is allowed to, I mean, the movie is allowed to take these descriptions and turn them into something that's even more beautiful to look at. I'm going to continue. The only con completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women were buoyed as though upon an anchored balloon. They were both in white and their dresses were rippling and fluttering as they had just been blown back in sh after a short flight around the house. I must have stood for a few moments listening to the whip and snap of the curtains and the groan of a picture on the wall. Then there was a boom as Tom Buchanan shut the rear windows and caught the wind and the caught wind died out of the room and the curtains and the rugs and the two women ballooned slowly to the floor. I mean, that doesn't literally happen, but I still think that's an excellent description. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead. We're not going to talk about the other woman on the couch tonight, but I want to talk about Daisy. It says the other girl, Daisy made an attempt to rise. She leaned slightly forward with a, with a conscientious expression. And then she laughed an absurd, charming little laugh. And I laughed too and came forward into the room. This is Daisy talking. She says, I'm pa paralyzed with happiness. She laughed again as if she had so said something very witty and held my hand for a moment, looking into my face, promising that there was no one else in the world. She so much wanted to see. That was a way she had. She hinted in a murmur that the surname of the balancing girl, the other girl on the couch, was Baker. I've heard it said that Daisy's murmur was only to make people lean toward her, an irrelevant criticism that made it no less charming. So Daisy does this thing where she has this like just charming, ripply voice. Her voice is a really big deal in the novel. Um, and by that, I just mean that Fitzgerald mentions it a lot. And then Nick just gave us this big clue about her character, which is she sometimes she murmurs so that men have to lean in closer to listen. Okay. At the bottom of my page 13, it says, I looked back at my cousin who began to ask me questions in her low, thrilling voice. More about the voice, guys. It was the kind of voice that the, ears, that the ear follows up and down as if each speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Her face was sad and lovely with bright things in it bright eyes and a bright, passionate mouth. But there was an excitement in her voice that men who had cared for her found difficult to forget. A singing compulsion, a whispered, listen, a promise that she had done gay, exciting things just a while since the, and that there were gay, exciting things hovering in the next hour. I told her how I had stopped off in Chicago for a day on the way East and how a dozen people had sent their love through me. Do they miss me? She cried ecstatically. The whole town is desolate. All the cars have left, have the left real, real, left rear wheel painted black as a mourning wreath, and there's a persistent wail all night along the North Shore. 
How gorgeous. Let's go back tomorrow, Tom. Tomorrow. Then she added irreverently, you ought to see the baby. Okay, so real quick, Nick, when he says this line, like the whole town is desolate, and, you know, he's being sarcastic. He's he's not being serious. He's trying to say, oh, my gosh, everybody misses you so much. And she just eats it up, doesn't she? The other, like, really random thing to tell you here is that Tom and Daisy have a daughter. And we get a little detail here that um, the baby is two years two years old. And we don't meet her in this scene, but I just want to say like this detail becomes really important later on in the book. So just keep that in mind. Um, then there's this funny conversation between Nick and Tom. And he says, Tommy Cannon, who had been hovering restlessly about the room, stopped and rested his hand on my shoulder. What are you doing, Nick? I'm a bond man. He's so always asking him, like, what's your job? With who? I told him. Never heard of them. He remarked <laughs> decisively. This annoyed me. You will, I answered shortly. You will if you stay in the East. Oh, I'll stay in the East. Don't worry, he said, glancing at Daisy and then glancing back at me as if he were alert for something more. I'd be a goddamn fool to live anywhere else. Okay. Then at the bottom of this page, guys, and I think I have to stop for the night. I know you're all on pins and needles. At the bottom of the page, we have this like super important, iconic line that I'm going to read. So... Jordan Baker is the name of the other character on the couch. And I don't want to talk about her tonight, but she's a friend of Daisy's. She's going to tee up this next line and I'll talk about her role a little more tomorrow. But at the bottom of my page 15, it says, I looked at Miss Baker wondering what it was she got done. I enjoyed looking at her. She was a slender, small breasted girl with an erect carriage, which she accentuated by throwing her body backward at the shoulders like a young cadet. Her gray, sun-strained eyes looked back at me with polite, reciprocal curiosity, out of Wayne Charming, discontented face. It occurred to me now that I had seen a picture of her somewhere before. You live in West Egg, she remarked contemptuously. I know somebody there. And then Nick says, I don't know a single. You must know Gatsby. That's what Jordan says. Then, upon hearing this, Daisy turns and says, Gatsby, demanded Daisy. What Gatsby? Before I could reply that he was my neighbor, dinner was announced. Wedging his tense arm imperatively under mine, Tom Buchanan compelled me from the room as though he were moving a checker to another square. Don't you love that? I just love the little details. Like, I love how every time we see Tom and Nick together, Tom is always moving Nick around. <laughs> But also we get this little teaser, like, wait, 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 wait. Why does Daisy know Gatsby? That sounds very suspicious or at least intriguing. And who is Gatsby anyway? These are all questions that we should be asking ourselves halfway through chapter one or by the end of chapter one. Oh, Fitzgerald, he keeps us guessing. Okay, guys, that's all I'm going to talk about tonight. Tomorrow I'll be back on the pod and I'm going to talk about Jordan Baker, and a little bit more about Daisy Buchanan and kind of the role of women in the book. Okay. Please email me if you guys have any questions. And I hope you you have your journals due tonight at midnight. And then you have your chapter one questions due Thursday at midnight. All to classroom. Okay. I love you guys. Stay, stay safe. Stay home. See you tomorrow.